Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to the show. This is Sports with Strawberry Ice. I'm your host, the Iceman, Jeff Trenopole. And as always, I'm bringing you sports from a west side point of view right here in the great city of Cincinnati, Ohio, home of the original baseball team, the Cincinnati Reds. Now, do me a favor. If you found the show, hit that like and subscribe button. Smash that thumbs up. You guys are killing it. I'm up to 1,706 subscribers. I appreciate every single one of you guys. Now, if you're watching on Facebook or Twitter and you have yet to subscribe to my channel, please do so. Please go to Sports with Strawberry Ice. Hit the subscription button at the bell for the notification. And every time I go live, you'll be notified. Also, exclusively in the YouTube chat crew, we're doing super chats. So if you want to make sure you get a question out to my special guest today, Bronson Royal, give me a super chat. I would greatly appreciate it. And as always, I'm coming to you live from the Ice Cave. And the Ice Cave is brought to you by T Properties. T Properties, quality housing for quality people. Check out the website at www.tpropertiesllc.com for all your rental property management needs and your rental needs. All right, so I got a great guest today. He's one of my favorite Reds ever. He's a rocker. He's a pitcher. He's a world champion. He's awesome. He's Bronson Royal. Bronson, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Can't complain. I also brought in my buddy uh, Dale from. Uh, I Bengals thought that Bruce. was my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had I had to bring you in from from the bullpen to help me out here because it's such a such a big interview. So you're welcome, by the way. <laughs> so Bronson, how's uh? I say how things are going. I know you you just uh, had a funeral. Your father-in-law passed away. So again, my condolences. I really appreciate you you doing this. So uh, my prayers go out to your family and, and everything. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you know, everything is good in the world. Just uh, you know, watching some Reds games and uh, having a good time most of the time. If the, those boys are starting to hit a little bit, making They're starting. Little- to- Dude, they scored 20 runs yesterday. <laughs> I was like, what the hell was that? <laughs> Where'd that come I, from? I was pumped for him, you know, because honestly, I said before the season started, you know, people are always asking about your opinion. And um, I looked at the lineup, even with Suarez and Winker out, and I thought that this lineup could be scrappy. As long right. as the pitching could hold it down, I thought they could be scrappy. And then and then they start the season going like basically oh for the first like 14 games with no hits. And I'm like, oh, but it's, start, it's starting to come around a little bit now. Yeah, it's starting to come around. I was, I was a little – well, I mean, when we went to Atlanta – we won what two out of three. I'm like, ooh, we might not be that bad. Then they went, <laughs> but like you said, it's starting to come around now. But uh, let, let's get into to your your life and career. And you started out in, in Pittsburgh, and then you eventually went to Boston and won the World Series there. What was out of your stops, the, the, excluding Cincinnati? What were your favorite stops? I mean, Pittsburgh or Boston? I think I know the answer, but I'll let you go ahead and answer it. <laughs> Oh, as far as well, well, places that I played that I really loved. I always loved. I mean, obviously, Fenway Park was amazing. You know, playing in Wrigley Field, the, the two places that were just, you know, the the old the old places that you could stand on home plate and say, man, Babe Ruth stood yeah. here like in Yankee right. Stadium, right? I mean, it's hard to compare that with anything nowadays. But other cities that I really loved, I mean, Pittsburgh Pittsburgh's field is, is amazing, the way it looks out over the field. Yes, the city. Um, I always loved Seattle. Every time I was there, you know, you talked about it raining so much, but usually – it was great weather for me. You could see the mountains coming down the water. I thought it was, I always thought it was a beautiful city. Uh, everything was so clean. Um, and then and then other places that you love to play was where you had success. And that was, you know, I pitched great inside of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love pitching at Dodger Stadium. It was something about that mound. The dirt was a little bit different than a lot of places um, around the league. It had like more of kind of a rubber feel to the to the dirt instead of it kind of like breaking apart and flaking. It was almost like you took dirt and they mixed a little bit of kind of rubber inside of it. It was strange. It was really nice to pitch on. Um, you know, but for the most part, I mean, there was rarely any places that I didn't enjoy pitching. I mean, if, if I had to say a place that I didn't really love going into was probably St. Louis, only because when you went in there, it was really hard to shut the door on those guys. You know, uh, yourself, 
in the seventh inning every time with Albert Pujols up and bases loaded, and somehow they tied the game, and you're out, and next thing you know, you lost. You know, uh, I, I can't. I call them the Tweety Birds. I can't stand them. I respect them, but I can't stand like Yanni Merlin. I can't stand him. I respect the hell out of him, but I cannot stand them. I, like I, I want to beat them so bad when you guys go play them, and it's for some reason it just seems like they've they've gotten the better of us all the way up until 2010. That's when things started to turn around for you guys. Yeah, a little bit. You know, it took a while when I got traded here from the from the Red Sox to the Reds in 06. I didn't know much about the team. And I didn't realize that we didn't have much pitching here, but we had a good offense. Mm-hmm. And so it took a little bit of time to get that whole, uh, you know, younger crew that I didn't know, you know, at all in the minor leagues, which was the Joey Votto, Jay Bruce kind of, um, right. you know, era. All those guys, you know, came up to the major leagues. And it takes two or three seasons for guys really to get seasoned enough to to really contribute, which is kind of what you're seeing going on with the team this year. You have so many young guys that in order to get, you know, everybody working on the same page, you need people to be seasoned enough to, to, to contribute and feel comfortable with this level. And it takes a while to get comfortable with the big league level. And so in those first couple of seasons, we, we just couldn't get it done. But then by 2010, you saw the infusion of some of the young talent getting seasoned and we got over the hump and made the playoffs, you know, three out of those last four years. Exactly. Dale, I'll let you talk now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just uh since we're we're kind of early on here, I'll ask, did you play any sports uh growing up? Did you have any other loves outside of baseball, hobbies, anything like that? Yeah, as a kid, I played a little bit of everything, you know. I think I played um I definitely played basketball all the way through high school, graduated, um put up like a I probably put up around 1000 or 1100 points in three seasons. baller. Um yeah, I I probably could have played college basketball probably not at a division one right out of the gate but probably a smaller school I could jump out the gym um and I was a pretty good player but I was really very raw and un, you know I was I, it was something that I just did for fun my, my father never really showed me anything basketball wise I didn't go out in the backyard and take a thousand jumpers a week you know it was just something that I did in my spare time on the baseball side of it was where we were real serious about the craft right uh, I played football one year I think when I was 12 Loved that. We had a good time, but realized as you're getting older, there was a good chance to probably get hurt and wasn't mm-hmm. really looking to do that because I was I was definitely thinking about playing in the big leagues from the time I was five and six years old, you know, right. in, in a way that it wasn't just a fantasy. You know, I was in the weight room. I was I was squat, squatting, benching, deadlifting, you know, really heavy weight as a kid and, um, you know, kind of taking vitamins and supplements and carbo loading and doing all these things that we do as a professional athlete. I, I got to do that as a kid, which was very kind of an unusual upbringing. But um, you know, other than that, I, I, I didn't have a ton of hobbies, you know, after playing sports and doing your school, you really didn't have a lot of time. I love, I love climbing trees with my friends as a kid. I thought I was a ninja, you know, we, <laughs> we, uh, we had 800 acres behind my parents' house that my buddy, um, grandfather owned. And so we nice. had, a couple of, we had a couple of go-karts and like a three-wheeler or something. And we used to cruise all summer out there and climb trees nice. and fish and do a, do a bunch of things that kids do when they're 10, 11 and 12 years old. Right. That sounds like a lot of fun. Now, Dale was telling me here before we started, and I didn't realize this, but your father was a, was a powerlifter. Is that is that true? Yeah, him and his friends down in the Keys. So we, we actually, I actually grew up in Key West, Florida. We moved to where I wind up being in a little town called Brooksville, north of Tampa, when I was ten. But in in the seventies, he was a construction worker, and all of his friends were into lifting weights. So they they were all squat benching and deadlift. You know, these guys were benching somewhere between four and five hundred pounds. They were all squatting and deadlifting like in the mid six hundreds and so they were real serious about that. And that's, that's where the, the thing with the weight room came with me. So right. he saw me play T-ball. We had never played catch as kids. And so he asked me if wanted to play a sport. I said, sure, I'd love to play T-ball. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, because he, he played basketball and football in high school with no baseball. Right, right. And so after he saw me throw a ball across the infield like a 12-year-old, 
Yeah. Um, and I never played catch and I was five. He thought he had that arm. <laughs> yeah. He thought I'll put him in the weight room and I think I can get him a free education in college. I remember very distinctly that was his, mm-hmm. that was his goal. And as we started upon this journey, you know, you're just getting stronger. And back then, you know, this is the mid eighties right. and people are constantly telling your father that, you know, you're going to stunt this growth. You're crazy. Uh, yep. That's what they said about Yep. I remember that too. They said that to me too, which, I mean, I never worked out, but, <laughs> but they would say that too. Don't work out too soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They would always say that. And you know, it was like, the only people who were lifting the way I was lifting was like Russian athletes, you know, back in those days, Olympians. And, right. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm eight years old. I've got a DVD of me. And if I don't have this DVD, probably nobody believes this stuff, but right. I'm eight years old. I weigh 55 pounds and we would, we would max out twice a year. And on this, on this DVD in 1985, I max out, uh, I, I bench 130 pounds. I deadlift 255 and I'd squat 235. And I'm a little tiny kid, man. I weigh yeah. pounds. And when I watch the DVDs now, you know, it's hard, it's hard to believe, honestly, but it was just something that we did on a regular basis. And it was just, it didn't seem extraordinary to me, but it was because we were just, we lived that life, you know? Right. That probably instilled like that work ethic in you at a young age without you even knowing it because it just was part of your life. Absolutely. It gave me, what it really gave me was this kind of this mental toughness about the grind, the everyday grind, which I, you know, I wasn't thinking about baseball being 162 games back then. Cause you know, when you're a kid, you just played, you know, 25 games. Right. But, but when I got in the rookie league, I really realized that a lot of guys would get burned out very quickly by August, especially early in their career. And for me, it was just such a year round thing because even when I was playing other sports, we were still lifting weights and we were always, we were always preparing for, for baseball. So if I'm playing basketball, I'm still coming home at night sometimes and hitting in the batting cage, you know, with lights on and stuff. So, so it made it made my mind understand that baseball would be a year-round process for me, and it really helped me out throughout the minor leagues for sure. Now I have a question. Now, now you say your like, kids are getting burnt out back in, in '85. Then, what do you think about the kids now that they, they play travel baseball and, they, and then they they're playing all year all year round? I mean, I don't see how these kids, especially pitchers, like they're snapping off curveballs that you know. 12, 11 years old. I don't, I, we were always told that's not good for your arm. What's your thoughts on that? Right. Well, you know, the travel ball is definitely, you know, it's, it's raised the bar. There's no doubt. I mean, if you play mm-hmm. better talent, you're going to, you're going to get better. And they're basically taking elite all-star teams and traveling around, you know, in my day, I got, I, I was really fortunate in the little town that I grew up there. Like I said, we had five of us, we had five guys play, three of them played minor league baseball at the AAA that were all in my little league circle. And then me and EJ Przinski both played 15 years in the big leagues. I mean, he was my catcher when I was 13 years old. And uh, so we had this we had this really, you know, unique group that came out of, you know, just regular non-travel ball, just like playing for Dairy Queen, right? Like right, right. on Saturdays and Tuesdays or whatever it was. Um, these days with the travel ball, you know, th- there's something to be said that, that it, it, it obviously is better for playing more games. I mean, these kids get used to that. But the, the one part that I don't like about it is that it kind of doesn't give you the opportunity to play other sports sometimes. When you're a kid, you know, when you're playing a little bit of soccer and you play a little bit of basketball, you're picking up hand-eye coordination with your feet and different yep. things that can help you in baseball or another sport. And, you know, when you having to play baseball all the time, you know, I think it can be a little bit of a grind. It's nice to have a little bit of a breather and a break. Would I have wanted to play 80 baseball games as a kid? Probably. Cause you, when you're a kid, you feel like you can just do that. But, right. um, you know, is it nice to have some breaks and some time in between and maybe have some time in the summer where you're not playing or in the fall? It, it would be nice. So it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. But as far as the curveball, um, you know, I think I this is what I always say. You know, we talk about we talk about stress on the arm. Mm-hmm. And um, I personally think that the breaking ball is one of the – a curveball is one of the most unique things to try to command. 
Right. You see all the time. Those guys at the big league level who still can't throw strikes with, with their breaking stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage kids at a younger age to not take it into the game with hard velocity, but I want you to play catch with it on flat ground early in your life. And right. the reason is, is you're going to start understanding that the ball is going to be spinning out of your hand forward because every other pitch spins backwards. Right, mm-hmm. so a fastball comes yeah. up backwards, so a change of it comes up backwards. If we're throwing a, a curveball, it's going out forward, and it's a very unique thing to, to get your brain to understand where the release point is to throw a strike. Right. And so, I like kids to play flat ground, even when they're 10, just spin it a little bit. But you're always telling them, like, you're not maybe you're not going to throw it in the game until you're 14 or 15, but you have to have an idea of how to throw it before you take it into the game. And so, I like to get kids throwing them early, but not throwing them at max effort. Yeah, the cool the cool thing about when you would you would pitch, and I, I got to put this. I'm gonna try to put this picture up, but I always love your. I call it your iconic leg kick. I think this because not everybody does the straight out leg. Everybody does a bent knee, but it's also that. And it's also like you just said. You you would say you throw frisbees up there because I mean you throw it from here, you throw it from up here. You, you know, especially the, the older you got, the more you did more arm angles. How did you come up with the leg kick and just morphing yourself into the different arm arm angles as you got older? Right. So, so all of that, I mean, the arm angles obviously is, is a testament to having command as a kid. What we right. find is if you can throw strikes at high school, you'll throw strikes at the big league level. And if you walk guys in high school, you'll walk guys at the big league level. You know, there's something very innate that I think is built into the machine very early on about hand-eye coordination and about feel. And it's also why you get a guy like John Stockton who can shoot free throws and a guy like Shaquille O'Neal who could practice just as long. They can never shoot a free throw the same, right? Because there's something, yep. there's something there that you just can't get over the hump after your 30s up years old, you know? And so um, as a kid, I, you know, I experimented a lot. My father was a guy who loved, he loved strategy. And he was always thinking about, because even if you go back to those weight room days, right, it would take us six months to try to, to try to squat five more pounds than you did, you know, six months right. earlier, right? right? We're working in these tiny, tiny little grooves of like, how do we get five pounds out of our body? Mm-hmm. And so you're always talking about detail. And inside of that detail comes some strategy. And so in that strategy, my father loved for me to like drop down and throw sidearm as a kid. And you were trying things at shortstop. How do you turn a double play there, right? Mm-hmm. And so all these things morph into the ability of me to do things on the mound that other guys maybe couldn't do and changing arm angles and, and throwing a 68 mile hour curveball and then an 80 mile hour curveball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of that was just trial and error as a kid and really kind of getting used to it. And I also think that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have long arms by nature or long, you know, big hands. Um, I didn't throw really hard, you know. So for me, I felt like it was almost like swinging a golf club that was a little shorter. You control it a little bit better, but you were never going to throw 100 miles an hour, right? right? So mm-hmm. we're all kind of working with inside so, some sort of limits of what you have as a, as a person physically. And I was just a guy that was kind of tailored to not be overpowering, but had a bit of command. And, um, you know, the, le- the leg kick was bore out of watching Dwight Gooden in 1985. Uh-huh. Yes, Doc. Oh, dude, love watching him pitch. He he was he was I, he could have been should have been one of the greatest pitchers ever. But that's a whole other yeah. story with him. Uh, listen, but, he, won, he won like forty or fifty games more than me, and and you know I mean he was doing cocaine half the time. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yes. That, just think what he would have done if he hadn't done that, Jesus. I honestly think he's like a two seventy five to three hundred game winner easily. Oh, absolutely. Was, I mean his rookie year. His rookie year in 86 was freaking re- – or, no, 84, wasn't it? 84. 84, 85, yeah. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, he was like, what, 19? Something like that? I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. Old. The year before that, he was in Lynchburg in high A where I played in 1997. He punched out 300 in the minor leagues that year. Jeezel. 
That's that's just ridiculous, man. <laughs> that is absolutely ridiculous. Now, one thing about, about you pitching is I always thought that you were a thinking man's pitcher, you know, because like you said, you, you didn't have the, the high high velocity. And sometimes, dude, honestly, it looked like you just make stuff up on the fly and try to and try to throw some up there and, and it would work. It, I don't think you'd actually make it up on the fly, but how how much does the mental aspect of the game come into you? Come into your game? Well, you know, what allowed me to do what I was doing out there, which could look very free and easy sometimes. Um you know, there was times I remember I woke up in, in Atlanta. I, I was taking a nap and Chris Welsh, he woke me up and uh, he, he said, hey, you're always dropping down and throwing a fastball and a curveball. He goes, when are you going to throw me a drop down changeup? And he'll tell you this story. I went out there and I was like, OK, I'm going to try it. I tried it in the bullpen. I said, I, I threw a drop down changeup. We laughed because me and David Ross, I don't think we gave up a hit for like a month and a half on the drop down changeup. It was, I mean, we weren't throwing it all the time, but it was absolutely hilarious. And then I said, there you go, Welchie. There it is. We got like three outs that day with it. And then um, we used it for like the rest of that season. I don't know if I ever use it the next year, but you know what, what allowed me to do that part of it was the fact that I was so comfortable in my own skin, right? It's sure. like in life, in a lot of ways, we always try to, you know, people are looking in the mirror all the time, wishing they had somebody else's ears or their nose, right? And there's, there's things you can't do anything about. And as athletes, people tend to do that. They tend to think, man, I'd be so much better if I could just throw a little harder, right? You just can't get that out of your body all the time. So part of pitching the way I did is having the strategy to pick people apart, but also just understanding that you only have what you have. So I'm going to have to beat you with 88 to 90. I'm going to have to beat you with a 68 to 75 mile hour breaking ball. You know, I didn't have Max Scherzer stuff or Clayton Kershaw's cutter or whatever it was. And so because I was so comfortable in my own skin, I could go out on the mound and kind of push the adrenaline down and say, you know what, we're going to let it fly here. Let's just see what happens. I pitched very free and easy. And part of part of it, if you if you watch me on a day to day basis, I would say what, a, what is kind of a testament to that is the way that I would warm up before a game. Okay. If you watched my bullpen before a game, it would be the, the easiest taw, game of toss you've ever seen in your life. Like I was throwing like 78 miles an hour in the bullpen. I remember my first start in Arizona. I warmed up yeah. and Jay Putz was our closer. He had never seen me really pitch before. And he, when I was walking off the mound, he said, "That you're done? I said, <laughs> he said, I cannot believe you're going out on the mound after doing what you just did. I mean, because I was just, because the whole time in my mind, it was about, I want to get loose enough to not get hurt. Right, right. Right. But I'm conserving all energy yep. and I do not need to see my best stuff because right. whether you have your best stuff when you're warming up in the bullpen or not, um, it, it's not going to come between, you know, in the next eight minutes before I hit the field. Right. You only kind of have what you have. So so instead of being down there and being like, I need to see my nastiest breaking ball to affirm that it's there. I was just throwing nice and easy. And I go, when we get out on the mound, we're going to go to war and let's just right. see what happens. Right. But a lot of guys can't do that. They need to affirm to themselves that they have their nastiest stuff. And by the time they get done with that, they've burned 45 pitches of nasty stuff in the bullpen and then we can't get deep in the ball game. And so part of, part of who I was to be able to do all that stuff was just the fact that I was, that I was confident enough myself to not stress myself out, push the adrenaline down and kind of be calm. Right. Exactly. All right, Dale, your turn. I keep, I keep talking. I'll, I'll let you, I brought you on here to ask you questions. I keep hey, talking. Go ahead. It's your show, man. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, Bronson, have you ever thought about getting in, getting into coaching or you kind of like the freedom of all the things you've been able to do since you've been retired? Yeah, the freedom has been really, really beautiful, you know, because, you know, for, for the average for the average athlete, I would I would think you probably don't get real serious about your craft until about 16, 17, 18 at the earliest. Right. A lot of times not till college. 
guys don't hit the weight room until after college and start thinking about calories and, and resting and stuff. And because, like I said, I've been doing that since I was five years old. You know, I retired at 40. It was 35 years of me thinking about this game, you know, in a, in a real professional way. And so I always said when guys were retiring, when I thought they still had some juice left in the tank, I used to say, you know, you guys go ahead and do that. But I'm going to play until they rip the shirt off my back or my body won't go anymore. Right. And, then I, and then I feel like I'll at least be satiated. I, I will have had my fill of the game. And, you know, if I could if I could rip myself into more than one of myself, there's no doubt that I would love to be a pitching coach in the major leagues. I would love to be a radio broadcaster. There's so many cool things to do out there, but because I'm only can be, you know, just one person, um, I kind of pop in, I'll do one thing for a day and I'll do this podcast tomorrow and, and I'll play a little music today and then I'll try, you know, I, I'm doing a bunch of one-off things and I didn't want to really be tied to a paycheck because, you know, honestly to be a good broadcaster or a good pitching coach or a manager in major league baseball is probably takes more time than being a player. Right. And I just wasn't looking forward to giving that commitment. Yeah, and, and I and you've you've done some broadcasting for the Reds. I don't I don't think you've done any this year. I know you did a, did some last year. And yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I think you did real, a really good job at it. To be honest, I love it because I what, what it gives me the opportunity to kind of explain how I thought outside of the box and how I thought about the game in a different way than most guys. Um, but you know, like I said, it's it's a little time consuming, and, and unless you you know agree to do like forty games, they usually just call me once in a blue moon. They asked me to do Toronto a couple of days ago, which Sam Lecure wind up taking that. Um, because I couldn't go do it. But, you know, once in a while, I don't mind I don't mind doing stuff. But, you know, if I want to go see Pearl Jam in Brazil or if I want to just, you know, play golf for, you know, seven days in a row, sometimes it's just nice to be off the grid, you know. Yeah, exactly. Or, or go watch Kiss. I know you got to go see Kiss a couple weeks ago with her, with her buddy Tim. How, how was that? Because hopefully I'm going to get a chance to go do this. But, but how, how was watching Kiss live and getting backstage? Because I know you've seen Pearl Jam. I know that. But what's, how's Kiss different than uh, Pearl Jam? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's such a legendary vibe for one visually. It's like, you know, they, they, they definitely give you what you want visually. You know, I was, I wasn't a guy who was, was huge into kiss music as a kid. Right. So I'm kind of like a late bloomer kind of catching up on the backside. So it doesn't hit me quite as personal as some stuff like Stone Temple Pilots or Nirvana. Yes. Yes. Um, but the visual was everything you'd want and more. I mean, these guys have done a, I mean, just to come up with the idea that you could, you know, put something on your face. So that way when you're 70, you can still be rocking and no one can really tell how old you are. I mean, absolutely genius. Um, but I had taken my buddy, Jamie Combs with me, who was a guitar player in my band here around Cincinnati. And he's a diehard. And uh, I mean, he was so nervous when Gene Simmons and the guys came out. Like I said, I said, Jamie, are you okay, man? He's like, no, dude. I said, what's wrong? He said, this is like you meeting John Lennon, bro. You don't understand. <laughs> and so yeah. it, was, uh, it was a really cool night. Yeah. It sounds like it. Now, now, I, I've been dying to get into it, and, and we talked about Kiss. And I, I'm the same way. I, I'm, I'm a latecomer to Kiss. I, I grew up in the 90s, you know, Pearl Jam, uh, Nirvana, STP, all those guys. Those are the bands that, that I really got into. Now, you developed a friendship with Eddie Vedder. How did that come apart, uh, come to be? That was uh, it was kind of a slow process, actually. You know, Eddie's a guy who's, you know, he's, he's, he's operating on a level that most of us don't live, right? He's like up in that Bruce Springsteen atmosphere. It's It's like... It's almost, you know, it's it's a notch above the average musician. It's kind of like a musician mixed with a with a with an A-list actor, right? It's like, yeah. you know, these types of guys can call up the president of the United States sometimes and have a conversation, right? And, and so when you're working in that up in that upper echelon, the same way it would be in baseball if you were, um, you know, if you were maybe uh, Derek Jeter, right? Right. Um, it's kind of a whole notch above where I live, and so it took a while really to get to know Eddie 
Um, but it started in 2010. I went to a Pearl Jam show for the first time because those guys were always torn in the summer like everyone else. And we were playing ball every day. Right. It happened to have an off day. And I got up to Columbus and saw the show. And my buddy, Mike Mushok, the guitar player from Stain. Yeah. Okay. I had called Mike and I said, hey, I'm going to be up there. You know, if you know anybody in that camp, man, maybe give him a shout. And and he did. He, he Through the radio, uh, I think it was through maybe through um, through their label or something. He, right. he basically... They had some tickets for me. I had already bought tickets, but there were some backstage passes. There was no one there, really. And so it was me and my buddy, uh, Brian Harris, who worked in the clubhouse for the Reds. We got to hang with Eddie and the guys in the band for a few hours before the show and, and about an hour after the show. And then it was just this gradual process of going to shows and then seeing Eddie and seeing Eddie and then getting his cell phone number and then, you know, playing a little music together and, and you know, him respecting what you do out on the mound and kind of sharing things back and forth because he's such a big Cubs fan. So, yeah. You know, I had I had my way with the Cubs a lot in my, in my <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> and so he'd call me all the time and say, Bronson, you know, he'd say, like, you know, I watched the game today, man. He goes, I was rooting for you and I was rooting for the Cubs. And he goes, man, you really put it on him, you know, and, and <laughs> talk about the game. It was beautiful. And, um, you know, so over the years, we've become friends. We've got to hang in a lot of different places now. And, um, you know, it, it's something that's been so beautiful because when you when you meet a childhood hero like that, you know, it's my favorite record of all time since I was a 15 year old kid. A lot of times I would think you, maybe the guy wouldn't live up to the hype. Right, right, right. But Eddie, for sure, man. I mean, just his authenticity, the way he listens when he talks to you, the things he remembers, it's just absolute magic to be around the guy, really. Now, there's a couple of cool stories that I want to get into with you. And the first one, and it's a video, I think I saw it on Reds Live or something. It's a couple of years ago where you are at a concert, and I think he called you up on stage, and you played played the guitar for, I can't remember which which song it was. And Eddie, you, you, if I remember the interview, you were like, Eddie looked at you like, holy shit, okay, you got this. You know, how to, you know how to play it. And you were up there playing with them. How cool was that? And how did that happen? Yeah, that was the first time I played with them. So I played played with them uh, two times, once with the full band mm-hmm. um, in Fenway Park in 2015, uh, you know, in front of 40,000 in a place where I won a World Series. I mean, that, that was a magic was, night. Was that nerve-wracking? <laughs> that, that one was not. The first okay. time was, the, okay. which we were talking about, the first time was in a small theater, probably in front of 5,000 people in Orlando. Okay. And I was sitting in the crowd like any other fan. I didn't even have his number back then. And um, he I, after he, he, he played for about an hour and a half, a half he did porch, walked yeah. off, and came back for an encore. And he said, I got a buddy in the house, Mr. Bronson Warren from Cincinnati Reds, why don't you come up to the stage? And I literally <laughs> threw it out of my seat. Like you're in the movie theater as a 12 year old kid. Like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I walk up to the stage, and the stage is probably up to my neck. And his security guy, Pete, had come around the corner to tell me where the stairs were. So before he could even say anything, I just like just floated like up on the stage, you know. And, right, right. And and Eddie just leans over off the mic and he says, uh, "You know how to play black?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "I'll get you in two songs." So I, I walk up to the side stage, and um, his guitar tech was there, George Webb. And uh, I said, George, what's he doing, man? I said, first of all, I said, Sean Casey told me to tell you hi if I saw you today. <laughs> and I said, secondly, I mean, what's going on here? Am I playing the guitar? Is he playing the guitar? What is he doing? He said, I don't know, man. He said, because he doesn't play these songs for anybody by himself. He doesn't really play a live, black, even flow. He doesn't play a lot of those songs that, for one, usually take more than one person to kind of make happen. Right. But also stuff that I think that he didn't write the music to, that he only wrote the lyrics to. He doesn't do when he plays solo a lot. So he had, he had only played black one other time by himself on an organ because somebody had um, given him like a donation on the spot. Okay. So goes by, he calls me out. He tells the story about reading that I played um, black in a bar across the street in 2012 after we lost game three to the giants. Okay. I was over at the Holy grail, had a band in there. 
win, lose, or draw. I was going to go over and play. I think I played like eight songs, and one of them was black. Eddie read that, and he said, you know, I, I never, I didn't hear it, and I didn't see it, but I just assumed you'd come up and play it tonight. And then, and then he says, go ahead, you're up, brother. And I start playing his acoustic guitar, and as I'm playing the intro, as I watch the video back later on, I got the video, you can see in his face, he's looking at me, he's looking at me, like, is he going to be able to pull this off? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Oh, we're good. And then he goes and sings, man, and it was awesome. Yeah, that was so cool because I remember I seen that video and I'm like, because you like you said, you can see Eddie there going, "All right, can he really do this?" And he's like, "All right, cool, he's got it." And then you, you go into it. Now the other cool thing I heard, and I, again, I can't remember what the video is, but there's a a pen in in one of the Pearl Jam's videos that Eddie actually uses to write songs, and I think he he ended up actually giving you that pen, right? Yeah, he gave me that pen. It was actually that night after I played that song, he he handed me an envelope. And uh, I had forgotten about it till the end of the night. And as I, I opened it up back in the hotel room later on, and it had this just beautiful note. I mean, just his handwriting alone is like a, is like a work of art. I mean, but he's really worked at it. You know, like he works on his calligraphy. He really like, he's, he's an artsy guy, you know, yeah. and he, he had written in there um, something like, you know, Bronson, last time we were together, uh, um, you know, we were talking about um, lucky typewriters and writing lyrics and things. And he said, I meant to give you this that night, but now I'm afforded another opportunity. He said, I got this, fairly ordinary writing utensil right in in a hotel in santa monica many years ago and i know it's got some good juju and some songs left in it i want to leave this one to you and he gave me that pen and uh you know i just i just finished uh, i'm in the midst of mastering right now my first original record that i've ever written um and uh it's almost finished it's getting mastered in london right now and um i wrote you know i wrote the lyrics to to almost all those songs with that pen and so it was awesome. a pretty good process yeah so, so you got a gig here, uh, real close to my house here, the Pirates Den, uh, Saturday, August sixth. Will you be playing some of these original songs there, there too, as well? So this this band is my Cincinnati band. We we mostly play all covers. We do mix in one or two of these originals that I had written over the last couple of years, um, but I recorded them with, with with a different band. It was a bunch of guys that I met when I played in New England. Okay, They're all Red Sox fans, and we used to do this charity event for Theo Epstein called hot stove cool music every year okay. and and those groups of guys they all they all play in bigger bands they don't have real jobs right so the guys in cincinnati they all have like regular day jobs except for right. my buddy jamie combs who plays music for a living but right. th- around here it's kind of like we just get together about 12 to 15 times a year we have a really good time and play a bunch of cover songs and it's it's a really good band but out there i always said i was going to write an original album with these guys right and, uh so we, we got to pull that off over the last couple of years through covid and um it's been a fun process because I'm, I'm going to try to figure out how to push that stuff to the world for the first time. I've never really had to run that road before, you know, about how to get original music out and see if you can play some shows. So it's going right. to be I'm actually going to take those songs. I, I played the demos for Eddie in in uh, Pearl Jam's warehouse up in Seattle in 2018 before I recorded them. I just wanted to hear the really raw demos. Right. And, and, and you know, just tell me what he thought about it. And so, he you know, he listened to the stuff. He gave me some notes. He said, man, you got some good songs here, man. Just go record them. And so we did. And I'm going to now send them to him and say, hey, I need some advice about how I'm going to push this thing to the world and how I'm going to play some shows over the next couple of years. And we'll right. see, see what happens. Dude, that sounds awesome. Like, hey, whenever you're doing it, let me know. Because I'm like, I'll push it out on my little YouTube channel and <laughs> help you out as much as I, I can. It. All right. Dan, we got, actually, let's get a couple of questions here from the uh, the chat here. I don't, I don't want to keep ignoring people here. Uh, let's see, Jeff Holmes. And he's a Cardinals fan, but he's a Bengals <laughs> fan. So we got to go with him. He goes, uh, uh, who was the one batter? That was your toughest out. And what team did you have real hate for? Um, well, the second part of the question, I mean, I never really had any real hate for anybody in the game, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I always saw it as 
I saw it like when, we, when I played in that Red Sox Yankees rivalry, it, they tried to make you feel like you actually hated those guys, but it was more about the fan base, you know, hating the other team more than it was the the real players. And and when baseball becomes musical chairs where guys change teams more and more often, it's really hard to have hate for for other teams. I mean, I think if it was the 1950s and and I played on the Dodgers for my whole career, you know, you probably have some disdain for the for the for the Giants, I'm sure. But but it's in, in this day and age, I've always been an easygoing guy, you know, so I really didn't um, have any disdain for, for any team like that. But uh, toughest out, hands down, you know, Barry Bonds and, and Albert Pujols were the two guys that were just almost impossible to get out, to be honest with you. I mean, they they just you, – you, you just prayed that they hit the ball hard at somebody because you knew they were going to hit it hard, right? It was, it was like, uh, you know, they're going to square the ball up. They're not going to swing at stuff off the plate. They've just got so much power. They can hit ground balls through the infield, you know, that other people, you know, wouldn't get a base hit on because their ball went through the grass so fast. And uh, you just try to stay down. You tried to – you walked them. You didn't care if you walked them. But uh, just almost impossible to pitch to. All right, Dale, go ahead. I know, I know, I know Dale has got to have a Bengals and Brews uh, uh, co- uh, question here for you because if okay. you don't know, don't know his show, people get on his show and they, they let loose a little bit. They'll drink a couple beers, a couple shots, you know, do a couple different things. So I know he's got to have a Bengals and Brews question for you. Uh, and four hours later, you're drunk with Clark <laughs> Harris and Shane Graham these last couple of weeks, man. It's been a trip. But, uh, so – are you a beer guy, bourbon, wine? Uh, do you drink at all? And do you have any great party stories from your time in Cincinnati that you're willing to tell that won't incriminate you? Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah, willing to tell. <laughs> I know, I know. I tell these stories a lot. I was, I was actually in a hotel room in Boston two nights ago, telling a bunch of old stories, and I was thinking, I don't know if any of these can be aired. They're all like, <laughs> every one of them can't be aired, but. The first part of the question is I'm not much of a drinker. I never was. I'd go out to a bar. Usually I'd have three or four beers. I was, I was out a lot. I really, you know, I like people. I, I, you know what I really loved about the bar scene, you know, was, was talking to people in an authentic way, having this conversation with some college kids, whoever it was, you're having this real conversation and I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm being, you know, and I'm giving you back, um, you know, honesty and I'm not blowing you off. I saw so many other players that just blow people off and, um, you know, I think they realized that once they retired and nobody cared who you were anymore or, or much less, right. you know, that, that, that's when the real person would come out. And, you know, right. the, when, when I think of people like that, I think of like a Tiger Woods. I think of an Alex Rodriguez. I think of maybe a, a Randy Johnson where guys, you know, they were too uptight when they played. And then after they realized, like, you know what, I probably could have been a little bit more myself and been a little bit more relaxed in interviews and being cool with the fans. So I was always a guy who just tried to be cool from the, from the outset, you know. Yeah. Um, I'll tell I'm thinking of Cincinnati stories. I'll tell you a great story. You know, um, Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen is a big Reds fan. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. There was all these crazy stories from him throwing these two team parties back in 1990 and 91 on the West coast for the, for that team with Tom Browning and the whole crew vanilla. And these are legendary stories, man. And um, so when he started coming around our team a little bit and showing up in Dodger stadium and stuff, you know, I would always kind of prod him. It was like, come on, bro, let's throw a party like you did back in 1990, bro. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so he finally showed up in Cincinnati one day, and I threw him a little party down at – it used to be a place called FB's in town over by the um, – right right downtown, almost by Fountain Square. Okay. And it was, a, it was a little place, and underneath it was like a 70s vibe. It was like oh, old cool. houses, and it had a Miss Pac-Man machine. And it was a small, like, quaint little place. It reminded me of being inside of, like, a, like a mafia – um, little, little, little bar that only a few people would go to. And, uh, this party for Charlie and, and he showed up and 
you know, we must have been there. I, I probably put like 30 or 40 girls in the place and a bunch of friends and just trying to make them feel comfortable. And I never forget because we, they were talking about two and a half men was when he was going through that whole thing about, you know, the, the, the tiger blood <laughs> and all the stuff, the Adonis DNA and all that. Man. <laughs> two and a half men was, was suing him or he was suing them or whatever it was. And he was starting this other show. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Todd Zeal was there, the third baseman. Oh, yeah from the Mets back in the day. And I was like, oh, what's Todd doing here? And he, and he was like, man, Todd's one of our best writers. Like he writes half our shows. Really? Like, whoa, what? I mean, that's an amazing talent that nobody knew about. Yeah. And, um, and and Charlie always had a buddy with him named Tony Todd. It's a black guy who was his best friend since like second grade. If you ever see Charlie almost all the time, maybe not these days, but for about 20 or 30 years, Tony was always with him. Really clean cut black guy, never had a drink in his life. And, um, and Tony calls himself, he says it's Charlie Sheen and Afro Sheen. <laughs> those are two so they're like best buds i mean they throw batting practice to each other out in la trying to get homers at dodger stadium and stuff and um and so tony's there and we're hanging out and i'm just having a good time and i'm kind of staying away from charlie letting him do his thing and all of a sudden he has security guard that taps him on the shoulder and he's like hey man i need you back in this room and i'm like what and there was this little office i go back in this office man and it's just like this tiny little office there's there's mannequins all over the floor that they use for something there like but you know the body. I don't want to know. You might not want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the legs and the upper torsos were all detached from each other, and they were just all around. And it was just like an office, you know, a little messy, whatever. And Charlie's back in there, man, and he is messed up, dude. He is like, he is just freaking like twitching, man. He is like, Bronson, what's going on, bro? He's like, he's all over the place. And I'm trying to talk to him, and I'm asking him about being on the set. I'm like, what time do you get up to go on the set? And he's like, I go whenever the hell I want. You know, he's getting crazy, and he's starting to tell me like. I can see it. It's 1990 all over again, brother. You guys are going to win the thing. This is in 2012, just before yeah. the playoffs. And all of a sudden, finally, the security guard, he looks at me, and he's like, Bronson, listen to me. He's like, this guy is not going to die on my watch, bro. He goes, i got to get him out of here. Right. So I'm like, all right, dude. So I look at Charlie. I swear, I looked at Charlie. After, we've been talking for like a half hour in there, man. He's just like going out of his mind. Right. I'm like, Charlie, listen, bro. I said, we got a day game tomorrow, man. I go, we got a day game. I go, we need you. We need you, Charlie. He goes, he goes, all right, man. He finally continues. Me and the bodyguard, we literally drag him up the stairs, dude, to this back alley. His feet are dragging on the stairs like a dead person. Oh, All the way up to the top. The back door opens, and dude, this black SUV is raining. Black SUV comes screeching out of like out of a movie, dude. Like men in black, man. Guys with earpieces and stuff. They throw Charlie in the side of the car, dude. He disappears. You know, I mean, he was so drunk, it was unbelievable. And then the next day you see him on the Jumbotron. Charlie Sheens gives fifty thousand dollars to the community fund of the Reds, and he's like, "Hey guys, that's just amazing, bro!" Oh God, that, that's a superpower right there. To be able to do that and wake up the next day and be fine. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, I tell you what, I've had some, I've had some funny stories with Charlie, man. I've been at, I've been at, I was in Charlie's house another time in, in L.A., man, when uh, Johnny Gomes and um, Dustin Pedroia called me and they said they had lost so many games in a row with the Red Sox. It was near the end of the season. They needed the little, the little, the little doll from major league. Joe. Oh Bush. yeah. The, the, um, <laughs> yeah. I know you're talking about. Yeah. I show up at Charlie's house and Afro Sheen opens his box and says, look what I have Bronson. And it's Joe Boo, dude. I'm like, Whoa. and like, you're, you're up in, you're up in his house, in his bar area. He's got, he's got the shark fin from Jaws one. Oh God. You know, He's got he's got all this cool stuff from Platoon. He's got all these movie sets in there. He's got Babe Ruth's hat oh, in the dude, house. Really? Oh, and little Joe Boo sitting on the top of the bar, man. <laughs> that is freaking awesome, dude. That is so cool. I mean, the, the Babe Ruth hat, that to me, I'm like, I'm I'm a sports collector geek. I would love that. That would be cool to just yeah, see it. Absolutely. 
I would have tried to get something from him too if I was you, though, Bronson. I'd be like, yeah, I really like that. I need that for good luck. Yeah. Like, Let me get that hat from your father from Apocalypse Now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, Crypt Keeper, who's who's uh, big comments on here, he's keeping asking asking different questions about Pearl Jam and stuff, and if you know the words to. Uh, yellow lead better. I'm pretty pretty sure you do, but do you? And and he wants to know if you'd sing it, which I'm. Oh, I, you yeah. don't have a guitar, so <laughs> I don't think I don't think anybody really knows the true words to, to lead better. And I, I think I think what actually happened there, you know, is the way that Pearl Jam recorded a lot of their records is you know in a real organic way. So so the guys in the band are jamming on something, and 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 just as a lot of singers would do, you know, you're coming up with lyrics on the fly, kind of over this melody that you're hearing. And I think that might have been one of the real songs that Eddie probably mumbled some words and some of that stuff might have stuck. You know what I mean? Like, like he didn't he didn't know exactly what he was going to say when he was saying it. And, and those lyrics actually stuck. I mean, there's definitely a story yeah. in that song that that I, I believe has to do with, um, you know, a soldier coming back, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a box or a bag dead for right. you know, and his parents. Um being notified by military, someone knocking on the door. I believe that's the story in the song. But as far as like really knowing the lyrics, I mean, the stuff that he sang on the record and what he sings live are two different things. Yeah. And, and I've heard him do multiple, multiple different versions live. So you you just really don't know exactly what they're supposed to be. <laughs> exactly. But that but makes I, it even better to me. Like, Well, I, I always made the end, the end of the song is, I was dying. You was, was that's that's about the end of the song. I, I get I get I died or something. And that's about that's the end of it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool though. I, I, like I said, I'm a huge uh, Pro Jam fan. So um, let's get to your. We went through your years with the Reds, and unfortunately, you know, after the 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 long run you had here, the Reds let you go because they were rebuilding, and you went on to Arizona for a couple of years. Actually, only made it there for like a half a year, and you actually got an arm injury, which shocked the crap out of me. That you actually got an arm injury because of the way, because you we said on this broadcast here, you don't throw that hard, so, and you end up getting Tommy John, right? Yeah, that was um, so. I, I after I left here in thirteen, I, I really wanted to stick around, and um, you know they they were they they would have had me back for one year probably for you know a little bit of a discount or something, or they wanted me to. I think they wanted me to defer the money again, and I had already deferred the last three year contract for seven years. Right. for no interest. And I had already, I felt like I'd already done my part. You know, I was, yeah. I was probably the best teammate in that locker room. I mean, I threw every team party I paid for them. You know, I'd run a radio show on the game. I mean, I had, you know, if anybody needed anti-inflammatories or, you know, anything to help the starting staff, I mean, guys would come to me, you know, it was right. like, you know, I did a lot. And so I felt like, Hey, I gave you guys a hometown discount already once. I, I deferred the money so you could sign some other players. I really felt like I'd done my job. And so at that time, I felt like, you know, you should give me a solid two-year deal in order for me to stay. If not, I'm going to have to test the open market for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I wind up signing with the Diamondbacks for two years, and um, I get over there. And and right away in spring training, I, my shoulder was bugging me a little bit, and um, I got a cortisone shot, and I never had one of those before. I didn't realize how good that could work for a long period of time. Right. I got this cortisone shot in spring, and then I started the season. I, was, I got off to a good start. I think I was like um, – I don't know. I, I think I was leading the team in wins when I got hurt. It with like seven or something. I was already like seven and two or something. Right. And it was only like in I don't know late May or early June or something. And and um, and then my my elbow started killing me. And every time I would pitch, it would just swell up. And it got to the point where I I pitched eight times though with with no ligament in my elbow, and which is just unheard of because most guys can't command the baseball without it. Right. 
And for whatever reason, I still was commanding the ball and I was still winning. That's the thing. Like I went three and two with like a two something ERA and over that eight game stretch. And um, but my velocity kept coming down, 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 down. And so the last game I, I pitched for the Diamondbacks, I was in Dodger Stadium. I was warming up in the bullpen and my elbow, you know, like my elbow already doesn't. Let me see. It already doesn't straighten out all the way. You know what I mean? From pitching all the years. But back then it was about like here. Oh, and wow. that was after taking a lot of drugs to get it down. And right. so I was starting the game. I could barely even reach home plate in the bullpen. It would just I was bouncing the ball. And I looked at the pitching coach, Mike Harkey, and I said, hey, it's going to be my last one. I can't go again. Right. Said, okay. So I went out there in Dodger Stadium. I get three outs in the first inning. I come in the dugout. And Kirk Gibson, he says, he's my manager. And he goes, he goes, Bronson, I got to get you out of the game. I said, for what? He said, you're throwing 75 to 79, man. You ain't even throwing 80 miles an hour yet. <laughs> I said, listen, you got to leave me in the game, man. This is my last one. Let me roll. Right. I right. went in five innings. I beat Josh Beckett in Dodger Stadium two to one, man. Broke Hanley Ramirez's bat twice with like 80 mile an hour fastballs. And, uh, you know, I, I I went back home to Arizona. They looked at it. They said, your ligament's gone. You need Tommy John. But at the same yeah. time, that cortisone shot was wearing out on my shoulder. Right. And nobody really even knew this. I had Tommy John surgery and I had my shoulder done a few weeks later. And the, the shoulder surgery went completely under the radar. Like it, they never acknowledged it in, yeah. in, in the paper or in the reports. Nobody ever asked me about it because I was having the Tommy John. So right. they just said, oh, he's got Tommy John. And so I went and had the second surgery. And I knew it was going to be a battle to try to come back. And um, it took me like two years to get back right. healthy. And I still was never healthy. So I pitched 14 games for the for the, um, for the the Diamondbacks that year in 14. And then I pitched 14 starts for the Reds in 2017. And that really was the last 28 starts, basically a full season of starts um, from kind of a broke down body. But it had been 19 and a half seasons before that. I never missed a game. Right. That, that, that's what was so, so surprising about it because you're always so healthy and everything. And all of a sudden it just – Dropped off the cliff, but I mean, I was always happy that you came back and were able to finish out a as a red. Was that was that is that something you wanted to finish out as a red, or they were just the ones give you the opportunity? Well, I was only going to have a couple of opportunities there. You know, um, my old pitching coach from the Diamondbacks, who saw me struggling with all those arm injuries and still winning baseball games, mm -hmm. was Todd Stottlemyre, okay. and he kind of going up to Seattle, and you know. If you'd been in my personal space in a locker room for a long enough period of time, like a guy like Brian Price, who was my pitching coach for a while and my manager, right. you know, you got this sense that Bronson Bronson can do a little bit of extraordinary things. I mean, he can go out there hurt and banged up and he still finds ways to win games. And, he, you know, and I'm and I'm a good teammate and I make guys better. And I, you know, I give them a different perspective and all this stuff added up to like, you know, a bunch of crumbs that was like this magic cookie. And it was like, man. We'll take that guy on this team any day of the week, right? And so I was going to have a few opportunities to play in the game, even though I was 40 years old and had a hurt arm. Um, but I really wanted to come back to Cincinnati because I, I knew I knew that my body wasn't right. And if I was going to get healthy, I wanted to try to do it here because if, if, if it was going to be the end, I wanted to be able to retire in the uniform that I played so many years. Right. And so, you know, Brian Price was one of the few guys also in the game that was going to look at me and say, I don't care if he's throwing 82 miles an hour. I want that guy on my staff. And so right. that's what wound up happening. You know, I kind of had to talk, even talk the organization into it a little bit. I came here in the offseason. I threw a bullpen. Yeah. And Bill Patcher watched me throw it. And uh, Dick Williams was there and all the guys. And I was throwing in the bullpen. It was probably 82, 83 miles an hour at best. Maybe 81. I don't even know. Right. But, you know, Dust, I mean, uh, Billy Hatcher looked at me and he, he was like, that's, that looks like his stuff to me, you know, <laughs> and so I went to Dick, it was like, we, I, Dick Williams wasn't calling me and saying, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to sign you. So I was like, Dick, what is going on, man? Like, 
I saw him in the training room one day. It was just, I'm just hanging out. I was like, are we going to do this thing or what, man? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that you're going to get hurt again. And we're going to have to pay for the surgery. Oh. And I was like, look, if I get hurt again, I'm going home, man. I'm 40 <laughs> years old. Don't worry about it. I'm right. like, I'll play for the league minimum. Just give me the opportunity. Right. You know, I didn't care if I got over that hump, I go somewhere else and make some more money, you know, but I never did. And um, he gave me the opportunity. You know, I pitched 14 starts and then the last three months of the season, I traveled with the team and I feel like I was still playing and I ran a radio show and I, I gave all the love I could possibly give to the young guys on that staff, like a Tyler Malley and guys like Sal Romano, mm-hmm. you know, and Amir Garrett and, and all those guys. I gave him every nook and cranny I had, man, all, all, all the tricks of the trade I got to give you, man, to see if you can help your career out because I knew it was the end of the game for me. Yeah, now unfortunately, most of those guys are gone now. <laughs> so I, let's let's bring it back to what we kind of started at the beginning of this podcast is, is the Reds now, Reds today. And myself included, a lot of Reds fans are ticked off about the way things are, are going, and it doesn't seem like they have a sense of direction. Like the only direction is we're not going to spend any money. But there are some young guys that if they all hit in 2024, we could possibly have a competitive ball club again. What is your thoughts on the path that the Reds are doing and where, where their the future could be? Well, you know what the thing is the teams, teams like Red, the Reds are just always behind the eight ball a little bit. You're 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 in this pickle because the teams that have a ton of money, like the Dodgers and the and the Red Sox, who can spend all they want because their TV deals are a trillion dollars, they they have the opportunity to have homegrown talent. Mm-hmm. And then they always have the opportunity to add something to that homegrown talent. Go out and pluck out a Max Scherzer. And the Reds are not really afforded that opportunity most of the time. Um, just the economics of the game are continuing to be harder and harder for the smaller club because what winds up happening is, is we, don't, we don't have a salary cap in baseball, but we have a ceiling where, where the teams have to pay a luxury tax if they spend more than that, right? right. And whatever that number is, like $220 million to $250 million, somewhere in there, as that number continues to get pushed up, and obviously – active players want that number pushed up because that allows for free agency and for for a guy like me to get paid like i should when i'm a free agent right Right. so we want that ceiling to be higher but as that ceiling keeps going up it makes it harder and harder for kind of the middle class to lower class teams to be able to afford it so if you're looking at if, if you're like a guy like phil castellini and you're looking at your ball club and you're like i believe we're playing for third or fourth place this year or we're playing for third or fourth place and i can drop 40 million you know you're, you know, economically, you just say it makes sense to, to, to drop the money. And so what you're always waiting for is a homegrown staff to come up through the minor leagues like Jay Bruce and those guys did with Joey Votto all at the same time and Jody Cueto and Mike Leak. As they came up and Homer Bailey, you realize what you had. OK, we can go get Matt Latos. We can add a couple pieces that puzzle. But if you don't have that homegrown talent getting it almost done on their own, they're not going to be willing to go out and spend the money. And so, you know, it's frustrating for fans. It's frustrating for the front office. It's frustrating for everybody because you always feel like you're playing, you know, with the kind of an under, under, understaffed team. And, um, you know, I think in my mind, honestly, um, just like in football, you know, Tom Brady has the ball in his hand so often. He is so important to his team. I believe that starting pitching is that important to a base. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so for me personally, if I'm going to choose where I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to spend it on starting pitching. And the one thing I could say critically against this, against this, these guys is that I would have tried to not let a guy like Sonny Gray leave. You know, I, if you have starting pitching that is already seasoned and getting the job done and you're paying them top dollar and they're already there, you know what I mean? Like those guys I have to hang on to. I feel like I'll throw a scrappy lineup out there like we have now. Mm-hmm. 
young guys, mix in with Joey and, you know, and a rookie of the year at second base, right? And see if they can get it done at the plate defensively. I don't, I like that. But you don't take guys from AAA, shove them in, a, in, a, in the rotation and just go out there and get the job done in Major League Baseball. It doesn't happen. It takes a while to figure out how to get big league hitters out on the consistent basis and to stay healthy. And so for me, I was disappointed that they have let some starting pitching go over a, a lot of years, starting back with Johnny Cueto, Mike Leak, myself. Mm-hmm. You know, letting the starting pitching go to me is where they're dropping the ball a little bit. And and I don't know the economics of the game, though. So I, I can't say how their right. bottom line, you know, right. is affected by that. But but just from the outsider's perspective as a yeah. player, that's the only thing I'm disappointed in. Yeah, I mean, the thing that frustrates me the most is, is we always talk about a small market, is the, and I call, like I said, I call them the Tweety Birds, the Cardinals. They're not much of a bigger market than we are, but they're always a competitive ball club. And like you said, I think they spend their money on pitching. They always got pitchers. I mean, and they can mix and match with other people. That's one thing where I agree. That's where I think the Reds have dropped the ball on this is you got to have pitching in baseball. You got to have pitching. There's also a lot of, there's also a lot of things that I'm I'm not even privy to after being in the organization for a decade, which is, which is, you know, who are our scouts, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of draft classes did we have over the last five years? You know, if, if I'm just guessing and you see that the Cardinals are competitive every single year and with a lot of unknown players who come up and do well on a team like that, it seems like somehow they're getting homegrown talent that's more consistently uh, better than, than some other teams like the Reds, right? And so, you know, is their scouting department, do, do they scout on totally different um, ideas than, than the Red Scouts, right? I, I don't know where the ball gets dropped, but there's just so many layers to baseball and how we acquire these players and then how they flourish inside of an organization that it's, it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what would turn the whole ship around unless you could see the thing from, you know, all the way from the top, which is the, the five or six people who maybe sit around a table and say, yeah, we're going to give 200 million to Joey Votto. Right. Because right? with if you if you think about that, those people who are saying yes and no to those contracts, it's not Dusty Baker. Right. 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 We're not in on these meetings. Yeah. I've had these conversations with these guys. They do not know that Joey Votto is going to get two hundred twenty five million and that the next week Brandon Phillips is going to sign for seventy two. Right. There's a handful of people who know that. And that's ownership. Right. And so you can see the ownership's books and you can actually see who, why they make money, where they don't make money, and all these things, and then start going down to this, the scouting department and the drafts and how good are our drafts. You have to see all this stuff to really know how can we make this organization better. And, and, and they obviously are there trying to do those things, but it just isn't working out right now. Yeah, unfortunately. Now, you brought up Dusty Bacon, you brought, brought up uh, Brian Price, um, and you uh, played for Tito. I, I don't, not, not, not that I'll have to, I don't want you to pick your favorite, but I mean, I guess. Well, how are they different and playing for all these different managers? Because you had Dust, uh, Dusty and Tito have won more games than, you know, most managers combined, you know. Right. And, and Brian Price, I think Brian Price was a good manager. I think he got a raw deal here, in my opinion. But what was your what was it like for playing for Dusty and, and, and for Tito? You know, I would say, for one, Brian Price was my, was my, was my favorite pitching coach of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, it also was probably because I was also in the in the prime of my career when I was a little bit more respected, you know. Like I had a guy like Dave Wallace, oh, in my Boston years, and and uh, but I was a little younger then. You know what I mean? You could you could there, there's a, there's a weird thing when you're you're young in the game and your pitching coach or your manager sometimes can feel like the principal at your high school, right? <laughs> right, right. Like a wall or a barrier between you and that guy. But as you become more seasoned and you creep in closer to that 40 year old age and you're well respected in the game, you then sometimes have that manager or that pitching coach become in a lot of ways your peer and you can talk on the same level and you're not always talking up to him anymore. And so, 
you know, in the early years, it's hard to kind of rate the, uh, my old pitching coaches versus a guy like Brian Price. But Brian, at the time, was was my favorite pitching coach for sure. I actually thought, um, you know, I thought Brian was an okay manager. I thought he was a much better pitching coach. And and, and the reason is, is because Brian is a super nice guy. And, um, you know, when you get put in the manager spot, you get put in a spotlight sometimes that you got to be a little bit more kind of um, – sugar coatish or like you you almost got to like treat things with a little, little softer when you're any other coach you know you can just be who you are right and i really love brian who he was as a pitching coach flying under that radar but when you put him in the spotlight he became like where you're having to talk on tv every day you have to be very politically correct you're having to be kind of like a straight laced guy and he wasn't really that and so you know it took someone special like dusty to be able to do both which is be the manager and kind of be this openly swaggish you know just having a great time, tell you exactly what he thinks and not worrying about what he thinks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just putting the toothpick in his mouth and having a great time. But uh, I, Dusty was my favorite manager of all time, hands down, the most eclectic guy I've ever been around. I mean, he could go, you would walk in his office and he would have little sticky notes. I've never seen a guy. I mean, look, I left $40,000 worth of tickets every year on my pass list. The average major player leaves probably five dollars to $7,000. I left 40 every year. Dusty's the only person who used to leave more tickets than me. And that's because he had friends everywhere. And if you you go in his office, he would have little notes. Call such and such back because there's a house in Arizona for sale. You know, I need my, my one iPod that's sitting on my couch. I need to call somebody to get that. I've got a moose leg here from Alaska that needs to be, the chef needs to dial it up right. I've got, I've got tomatoes here because Joey Nevada's not feeling good that I grew in my, in my garden back home. They just got shipped here. Like he was doing things you could, you need four humans to do everything this guy was doing. Right. Thing that was going on in the ball club. I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. The energy level for an older guy, just amazing. Um, and the difference, I would say, probably between him and Tito, I love Tito as well. Tito was a real player's manager as well. Um, I would say the difference between Dusty and every other manager I ever had, including Tito, is that almost everybody else would kind of cower a little bit to, like I say, that politically correctness and that right. softness and kind of like shy away from confrontation with the general manager and Dusty Baker was Dusty Baker through and through. And he didn't care who was in the room. He didn't bite his tongue for nobody. He told the same stories in front of me as he told in front of Hank Aaron. You know what I mean? Like, and he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a chameleon. He was just Dusty Baker and um, pretty amazing to have played for him for such a long time. And to just, I mean, just to know that Dusty Baker is half credited for inventing the high five. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Right. That's cool. Inventing the high five. This guy is like he's like in a whole nother league. They should make a movie about Dusty Baker. <laughs> oh, dude, they, they totally could with his his life and this the stuff he's been through. And uh, just yes, that that would be. I go watch it. That would be cool. Another another interesting one here. And you give me uh, just about an hour. I mean, you're great here. Real quick, Joey Votto. Now, and, and he's an iconic player for the Reds. He's going to go into Hall of Fame. What is like he has to me has come out of his shell the last couple of years. I mean, first was a rookie, he didn't say a whole lot. Last couple of years, he's been unfreaking believable. He's on TikTok now, he's got Twitter, he's got all this stuff. Right. Is the Joey Vile that we see now is that the way he's like in the, in the in the in the clubhouse? Yes, he always was. And so I would put Joey kind of in that same category when I talked about Tiger Woods and I talked about Alex Rodriguez and I talked about Randy Johnson, right? They all have different ways. Like Randy was the guy who was, you know, just a jerk to everybody his whole career, right? He was just like irritated and pissed off all the time, wouldn't sign no baseballs for nobody, didn't fly on the plane with the team half the time. You know, there's these layers to these guys that they felt like they had to be 
almost like put on a face and a facade in order to perform. Right. And Joey has always been the same guy in the locker room. He's always been the smartest guy in the room. He's always been well-read. He's always been funny, you know, joking around, having a great time. But nobody else got to see that because he wasn't comfortable enough to let the guard down. Right. And, you know, over the time that I played in that locker room, Joey was a guy who, you know, he would watch me. He would watch me and see how I would talk to the media. And he would see how I, uh, you know, how I communicated and mixed it up with other humans. And he would say to me once in a while, something like, you know, hey, Bronson, did you hear what I just said to that guy? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, would you have said that a different way? And, you know, he was trying to find how it is he was going to get comfortable in the world. And, and when you're getting near the end of your career, it's just natural. You feel like, you know, you own the, the space you're in. You feel comfortable here. You don't feel like people are being critical of you anymore. And you can be let loose a little bit and be yourself. And that's what you're seeing in Joey is that what we got to see in the locker room all those years, he is now just saying, okay, you guys can come in and watch the show as well. Right. And that is a beautiful thing. And, you know, I've said for a long time, I told Joey two years ago, I said, hey, man, you let me know when you want to do it. I want him to do stand up in front of my band and like a Bogarts or something. Oh, dude. We'll play a show. I'm like, you put on a tuxedo, dude, and freaking just take a whole year to dial in an hour or half hour set and yeah. just crush like right. We'll get a couple of comedians, well-known comedians to help you write and just go up there and destroy, man, while you're smoking a cigarette on stage. <laughs> and then I said, we'll play some music afterwards. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, Bronson, he said, he said, you know what kind of balls you got to have to do that, man? And I said, you got him, bro. <laughs> you know, you're seeing this come out of the shell. Maybe one of these days I'm going to get him up on that stage. Oh, dude, that would be epic. If that ever happens, you got to let me, me know because I want to be there front row. That would be awesome. Oh, I told him. Dude, he would sell the place out in a second. Oh, hell yeah, he would. He's been Absolutely. so guarded. He's been so guarded in his career, you know, that, um, you know, people just want to see. I, I think people would show up for him to read a kid's book, you know what I mean? Because he's really been so untouchable as a player. I mean, he really is a guy who comes to the ballpark and goes home and comes yeah. to the ballpark and goes home. I mean, in all the years I played with him, I only got him out twice. I got him out for a boat party once and got him out to a club in Arizona one time. And both times you'd be like, who's the guy on the dance floor freaking like freaking spinning all the girls around. <laughs> Joey Votto is the best dancer in the whole crew. And you never even seen the guy dance before. Like it was like amazing. Well, what, do, what doesn't he do good then? If he's a good dancer, he's a good baseball player. What doesn't he do good? <laughs> What, what he hasn't been, what he doesn't do good or he didn't do good, I'd say, is just, you know, kind of kind of deal with a little bit of anxiety, like social anxiety. You know what I mean? To like to like be able to just let that guard down and say, I don't care if you see the inside of me. Go ahead. Right. That's how I lived. I opened my closet from day one to people because I realized for me it was less pressure. But some people didn't didn't see it that way. And it took Joey a long, long time to be able to let that guard down a bit to just say, Hey, I'll let you guys see the inside of me. And, he, and even to this day, I mean, you're seeing parts of him, but he's still probably as much more guarded than I ever was in that locker room. Yeah. Well, the older you get, the more your, your, your give a F uh, goes out the door, <laughs> you know, that's Absolutely. the way it is. Yeah. What you realize people don't care. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. What? I was just going to ask Bronson if he had enough time for me to get another question in or if <laughs> oh, yeah. needed to go. I keep, I keep taking the time. I'm sorry. Good. No, I, <laughs> um, it sounds like you were a phenomenal teammate, obviously. You know, you did a lot of things, hosted the parties, did things outside of just, you know, going on that field and off the field and, you know, just hanging out with the guys then. Who was one of your favorite players? Doesn't even have to be Cincinnati. Could be Boston, you know, from earlier in your career or something like that. One of your favorite teammates and then maybe also funniest. Um, one of my favorite teammates and funniest, hands down, was uh, Kevin Millar. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. 
you guys get to see him on TV now, and it's part of what makes him go now. Is he he's got that he's got this little twinkle in his eye, almost that Will Ferrell twinkle, where it's like you don't know if he's serious or not. And it's yeah. like they never come out of character, right? They just yeah. they're constantly and 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 they do it purposely, you know, to 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 to, to be able to goat everybody and not really get in trouble because it's like this guy can say anything because he just says everything, right? So, um, Kevin Millar was was one of my favorites for sure. Um, David Ross. Um, Ryan Hannigan, the two guys who caught me here, you know, they were really my speed. The guys that I really loved were the guys that could kind of do what I did, which was um, they like to go out at night, but they didn't like to too crazy, right? It was like, we go out at night, but we also take care of ourselves while we're out at night. Right. right? Yeah. I'm not looking for a guy who wanted to get in a fight in the back alley. I wasn't looking for a guy who wanted to drink 20 beers a night. Right. So those were um, a couple of my great, t- I mean, but guys like Lenny Donardo from my Red Sox days, um, you know, in, in the Reds locker room, the, you know, it's it's endless, really. Paul Baca was one of one of the great characters of of um, of all time in Major League Baseball. Ryan Dempster, you Dempster. know, um, he's so, he's hilarious too. He's another guy who, who, who could do stand up. Is Dempster? Yeah, absolutely. These guys, you know, the characters of the game are the guys you really, really miss. The guys who made that locker room go, and um, you know, there's always a couple on every team, and they're the shenanigans. You know, I mean, when, when you're you know, when you're in a major league locker room and you got guys, you know, that, that are like Louis Tiant that have been playing, you know, been around the game for 40, 50, 60 years, man. And you're like showering with these dudes and everybody's playing grab ass and talking shit. And it's like, you know, you know, it doesn't get any better sometimes to that, then that, you know, sometimes you like take yourself back from yourself and remember you're like a kid and you're like, man, I'm in this locker room and all this crazy stuff is going on right now. But that's what made it fun being part of the right. boys club. It was the things that went on that you got to experience that you would never see anywhere else in a regular job because HR would have got called, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Now that's what everybody says too, is when they retire, that's the thing they miss. They they miss the game, but they miss hanging out in the clubhouse, hanging out in the locker room. That's a lot of people say that. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the boys club was, was always where it was at. And, and, and it's why I go down to the clubhouse now, you know, and it's getting harder and harder because, you know, because of COVID and also because, as people disappear from the game and people don't know who you are, it's harder to have like a really solid connection, um, you know, with guys and probably, you know, three years from now, there'll probably be hardly anybody, if anybody on this team that I played with. And then the only guys down in the locker room that'll still be there are the guys that clean the shoes and put out the laundry. who have been there for 25 years or 30 years, you know, exactly. and those are the guys you'll chat it up with, but there's no doubt that um, what you miss is kind of that, that hang man, that, that old high school feeling you get when you leave school and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be with these boys ever again. It's the same right. thing when you kind of retire from the game. Yeah, exactly. Now real r- quick, one more question. I'll, I'll, I'll give, give me over an hour. What the, the cornrows, I've been dying to ask you about this. The cornrows that you, you rocked in, 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 in Boston. Did, was that, oh, I don't want to say on purpose, of course it was on purpose, but was it more of a stylistic thing or you just were like, yeah, screw it. I'm gonna see if I can do this or not. Well, it started. See, nobody knew me back in my pirate days because we had bad teams that were losing ninety. And you had short hair too. I saw. I, saw, I never saw your short hair until yeah. I saw the video of pirates. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so I I had short hair all growing up. I never grown my hair out. I kind of had curly hair. You know, it was like my father's hair. It was just like a little messy and all over the place. Right. right. It's like it was like hard to control. So I so I I didn't ever have long hair as a kid. Right. And but but I was with the pirates and we had a couple of uh, Dominicans and Puerto Rican guys and one of the wives was doing cornrows. Okay. And some of the guy's hair. And I was like, I'm going to grow my hair out just enough to be able to do that, I think. Right. So I've done that in the minor leagues. And in AAA, I was really loving it. You know, I was having a great time. It was like, you can put on a hat easy, whatever. Right. I was pitching well. And I'd get called to the big leagues. And, man, Lloyd McClendon was my manager. And he was no business. I mean, he, he just didn't – he hadn't, like, didn't even crack a smile back then. He was all right. business. And he 
would call me in his office and basically want to rip my head off because I had my hair in cornrows. And he'd say, you know, he'd be like, well, you, you know, what do you got in your hair? And I'd say the same thing Pokey Reese has in his hair. And, and you know, he'd be like, if you don't get that out of your hair right now, I'm sending you the end ball and be like smashing the desk and stuff, man. Like, I'm like, God, no. So, so, um, so I'd take it out, you know, and then I'd go back down to AAA and I'd put it back in. And I, I felt so free and easy in AAA and you come call to the big leagues and I'm like, Walking on eggshells all the time. Yeah, crap. I got to take all the shit out again. <laughs> yeah. So it started back in the pirate days. So I get right. over to the Red Sox. And in 03, we were in the playoffs. And it's, well, before the playoffs, it's probably like August. And Kevin Millar, we come back from a road trip. And I don't know if we had a bad road trip or maybe he had a bad road trip. He yeah. said, Bronson, shave my head. So I take the clippers and I shave Millar's head. Right. Well, the next for the next month and a half, he comes to the park and he just keeps screaming at everybody. You got to skin it to win it. You got to skin it to win it. So he's 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 freaking um, forcing basically everybody on the team to shave their head, and everyone shaved their head that year by the end of the season except for David Ortiz because he had pretty short hair already. Yeah. Um, Matt, no, Johnny Damon and Nomar Garcia Parr. Everybody else shaved their head. And Nomar was getting married in the offseason. He said, if we win the World Series, I'll shave my head and send you guys a Christmas card. <laughs> Nobody knew that Johnny was growing his hair down to his shoulders. Right, right. So, so those are the only two guys that didn't shave their head. So I've got these videos that John Burkett, the old pitcher, made oh, yeah. in 03. And there's 150 media members. It's Yankee Stadium, ALCS. And you look over at the Yankees, and it looks like like a bunch of a bunch of CEOs all clean cut and you literally look over at our team and it's a bunch of white heads with guys like Pat Nixon with Fu Manchus we look like we the hell's angels man came straight out of prison or like it was unbelievable the contrast oh, and so, at the end of that 03 season when Aaron Boone hits that homer in game seven and we lose uh -huh. I went home that offseason and because we shaved our heads I said I'm gonna let my hair grow for a while I want to see right. if I can get over the hump right so I grew my hair up basically that whole season and it started getting curlier and curlier and I left it and and then in 04, Johnny comes in spring training. He comes in with the long hair looking like Jesus. Yeah. Manny start, Manny's got like the dreads going. Yeah. Pedro's got the jerry curl going. Mm -hmm. And this locker room is just getting crazier all the time. Millar yeah. is like the puppet master, and he's just winding this thing up. And so I thought, I'm going to go back to cornrows again. Right. So it was like midseason. We were in San Francisco playing Oakland. I had my hair put in cornrows. I'm in the lobby of the hotel, and the first guy I run into, of course, is, is Schilling, straight lay Schilling. So Schilling sees me, and he's just like, what is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, man, I just I don't want to hear it. So, But then I go like 15 straight starts without losing. Well, there you go. And after, you ain't taking him out after that. <laughs> after that, it was totally fine. I mean, when I started in the playoffs that year, they had they would have hairstylists around Fenway Park giving guys cornrows. And uh, – <laughs> You know, it was just it was just me being kind of a free spirit as I always was, and um, really enjoying kind of the craziness of that locker room and and making a push towards the World Series with those cornrows. You know, it was a time in my life that was was amazing. And um, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, would you would you do you regret putting cornrows? And I'm like, no, it was fantastic. It was like, you know, it was it was it was, it was something that made me a little unique. I was I was probably like the 15th most popular player on that team because that was just an unbelievable all-star team of, of guys right. and uh you know it made me stand out a little bit and, and i enjoyed the superstition of it and all that well you won a world series with the cornrows and you guys had one of the greatest comebacks ever because i mean i hate the yankees so i was rooting for you guys and i kept them that called you guys a bunch of idiots i think that's what you guys were called yeah. you had the because you were in didn't you pitch in the 
the game where Dave Roberts stole second and then everything started to, to change. Didn't you pitch in that game? That was game four. That was game four. I think, no, I don't think I pitched in game four. I'm guessing it, no, because I got beat up the night before in game three. I think I pitched game five out of the pen, okay. and then I pitched game seven. Um, no, game seven got clinched when I was warming up in the bullpen. So I pitched in game five and then in six. That's when A-Rod knocked the ball out of my hand in six. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I remember that now, yeah. That, that's in six. And then I pitched in game one and game four of the, in the World Series out of the bullpen as well. Yeah, now that 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 iconic play is unbelievable or, or he thought he could do that. And I just remember looking at your faces going, what the hell? You can't do that. <laughs> and yeah. they, we didn't have replay back then. Look at the umpires got together and – and that was that was before replay, and that that was also in a time when when everybody thought that you know the curse of the Bambino would make everything go south against the Yank uh, the Red Sox all the time. So, you know, I was just thinking, don't tell me that they're gonna not overturn this because man, if that starts, we're in trouble. Because then I had Jeter, uh, I had Sheffield on second base, and it was four to three, and Jeter scored already, and only one out. So I probably wouldn't have got out of that inning without giving up another run. It would have been a tie ball game. It would have been a totally different series. Now I have to tell you, I think you you got Sheffield to pop up after that. I think exactly. Yeah. But in, anyway. Bronson, you give me over an hour. I appreciate it, man. I could keep talking to you for forever. But again, I appreciate you coming on. I know you got family in town, so you take it easy. And like I said, anytime you want to call on the show, hit me back up, and I'll, I'll be glad to have you back on. All right, man. I appreciate it. When I start making a push for this record, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll touch base with you again. It sounds good, brother. Good All to right. meet you, Bronson. See ya. That was freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, did you have fun? I, I know I did most of the talking. I'm sorry. I know, man. That's you. I I said I knew you would. You know. Well, I, I thought there'd be more comments. I, I thought people would be blowing it up and stuff. Yeah, I did too. So, I was surprised. It was like, but I mean, he's such a great storyteller. You know, I know. I a lot of it was just letting him go, like and just listen to him. Yeah, I can sit here listen to him all, all night. That was that was. There's that not was a cool. lot for me to jump in to say. Like, just let this man go and listen to his stories. Right. That's that's kind of what I was trying to do. I was trying yeah. not to talk over him too much, but he would say stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, what about this? And I, get I know. I know. You want to, you know, throw you're something like, in, but it's like, like you don't like, want to interrupt the man. Exactly. Like, oh, it, it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Was you can great. tell, you can tell that he's a people person. Like, oh, absolutely. Like just a hundred percent just he, loves people, loves to tell stories. Like he's exactly what you thought he was. I mean, he's yeah. the, the interviews that he's given. Yeah. That's him. He's not any different. You know, I think he'd be like that if we met in person someday. Oh, for sure. You can just tell he's the same guy, no matter where he's at and what he's doing. He doesn't change. He doesn't turn up or down for anybody. He's just Bronson Arroyo. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Dale, I'll let you uh, plug your, your Bengals and Brews and all that stuff before we get on out of here. Yeah, we'll have a show tomorrow with uh, Tyler Mendering. I think that's how you say his last name. The TikTok um, dude. Who day, Jeff. Yeah, the TikTok Tyler. Um, so, yeah, that'll show maybe at 6, maybe at 7. I don't know. Uh, Travis is talking about changing times, but I really don't know. I've been on here. So I'll let you guys know as soon as I find out. You can follow us on Twitter, follow us on YouTube. We appreciate any any support. And Iceman, he's on our show a lot, and he's my boy. And thank you for having me on here with Bronson. It was a good time, man. Hooday. Absolutely, dude. Anytime. day. All right, guys, let's get to the Facebook group set. Let me live stream. And as always, I appreciate every single one of them. They are Hootay Nation, Hootay Legion, Cincinnati Reds, Riding Third, Heading for Home, Bearcat Ruckus, Bearcat Country, the Ohio State Bucknuts, the Ice Bar. And then you can follow me on all my social media platforms, all under Sports with Strawberry Ice. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Twitter handle is at Jeff A. Trenopole. TikTok is at Iceman90. 
I will be pulling off the sound later on and putting this on the podcast. So if you guys missed any of it and you want to listen to just the podcast, go check it out. It'll be on BeanPod, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher Play, pretty much wherever you get your podcast. Please make sure you rate, like, and review. Give me a five-star review. Leave a comment some more Cincinnati fans can find my podcast. YouTubers, like I said, you guys are awesome. We're 1,706 subscribers. And again, if it wasn't, and I keep saying it, and this is not tongue-in-cheek, if it wasn't for you guys subscribing to my channel and watching this stuff, None of this would be happening for for me. So I appreciate every single one of you guys who watch the show, subscribe to it, tweet it out, everything. That is awesome. Like I said, if it wasn't for you guys, none of this would happen. So make sure, tell everybody who hasn't seen the show, tweet it out. Tell everybody, Bronson Rory, he was an unbelievable guest. He's awesome. Check him out and go see him if you're on the West Side. Uh, His his band, let me bring it up here again real quick, is going to be at the Pirates Den. That's over here on the West Side. August 6th at 8 p.m. So make sure you guys go check that out. I'm going to make sure, hopefully if I'm here, I think I'm here. I'm going to try to make sure that I can um, go watch him and his band. Anyway, you guys have a great weekend. We got Memorial Day weekend. Go have a beer, celebrate Memorial Day, have some fun. And like I said, I'm going out of town, so I'm not sure what my schedule is going to be like next week. I'm hoping some of these Bengals who have told me they come on my show will come on, but we'll see. So make sure you stay tuned to the channel because you never know when I'm going to go live or post something. It's usually every day at 530, but like I said, Monday, probably not. Tuesday, probably not. Probably not live. I might post something. We'll see. Anyway, other than that, say it with me, people. That's just sports, baby. See ya!